<laughs> We're just going, right? It's just happening. <laughs> Welcome to episode six of the podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about film editing. We look at a scene together. We'll try to make sense out of it, learn some skills and move on with our lives. Tyler, how are you? Good. How are you doing? How was the epic editing challenge? It was great. I really enjoyed it. It was so intense uh, at the end because I had to like cut an episode basically within 24 hours. So I didn't sleep and the episode went live at 6.30. I was uploading till 6.27, I think. Well, I don't want to uh, get in your head and uh, force that on you again, but I thought that that episode turned out really well and there was a lot to learn from it, especially if someone had submitted to the contest. That level of engagement and having stakes in it, I think, would make you more kind of receptive to the lessons in that video, and I thought there was a great deal to learn from it, so maybe you shouldn't sleep anymore. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, it's cool in a sense because like, if you submit to Sundance or something else, you never hear why or what, uh, what the process is. Here we made right. a little bit of sausage making, which sometimes is not that fun. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. You got some insights. Did you notice that there were like lines dropped out in the episode because I couldn't watch it back? So it's like it went up the way. Just oh yeah, the last I did pass. notice at the end. Yeah, I didn't even notice because afterwards I just passed out, and so for the next <laughs> six hours, people were sending me messages like re-upload, fix it, and I'm like, no, I'm not fixing <laughs> nothing. It is what so it people is. on the channel would ask you to replace it on the why well, in the Discord group of the patrons oh that's like, cool whenever there's some problems i usually get some feedback and i try not to upload on the day that i'm releasing i try to at least have 24 hours so i can fix it but it, it, there was just no room that's cool that you can get feedback that you can respond to because it's i mean that's the important thing of having people watch your work is it gives you the refreshed objectivity right it's impossible to just make something and ship it into the world not impossible but maybe unrecommended because even if no one gives you feedback just watching it with someone that always gives me a new perspective an objective perspective just having someone in the room so so that's a cool note to take out of it totally i mean having early access which is a benefit on the patreon program so you get to see rough cuts you get to see sneak peeks and the benefit is really on my side because i get to hear some of the mistakes some notes some especially when it comes to like am i clear is something confusing i mean this is so helpful to have somebody with fresh eyes look at it and immediately like say okay i don't get this yeah and it's a super cool community too just from the interactions we've gotten on the podcast so That's that's great. So thank you guys on Sven's behalf and my own for your feedback and uh, insights. I never say thank you. I'm kidding. Well, you didn't. I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very grateful for this community. I think it's awesome. And I love that we can really show the process on Patreon much more than actually yeah. on the channel. Tyler, let oh, me God. ask you, how are you doing? Yeah. What's up with you? I'm doing good. Got anything going on? <laughs> Do I have anything going on? I have a lot going on. Uh, I have a new class starting that I just prepped the syllabus for, which is going to be really exciting. It's an editing theory class at UCLA Extensions, and there's going to be a really, really fun final assignment that I will be talking Sven into participating in at okay. the end of this episode <laughs> once we stop recording. And then I presume it's something he'll be talking about in the future. Do you want to hint at what it is? It's a, it's a challenge. Okay. A challenge. Nice. A debate type editing theory challenge, which is going to be really fun. Cool. And I will tell you more about it. Now, can anybody attend this class? Yeah, people can attend for sure. Yeah, they actually want me to uh, <laughs> email... Um, Colleagues? Um, 
Yeah, sorry. Correct. Yeah. Wow. This is going to be a good one. They, they actually want me to email colleagues and stuff and let them know about the class. Uh, so yeah, anyone can sign up and it'll be a lot of fun if you're interested. And what kind of experience level would you recommend they have? Any apparent, According to the announcement I just wrote, uh, any experience level is welcome. And it's very different than any other class I've taught. And I have a lot of freedom to kind of try stuff and make it specifically engaging because of that. So I, I like it. Awesome. I think now it's time to talk about today's topic cool so sven went to edit fest that's right and got to see an editor show a clip from double indemnity exactly double indemnity is the film noir as i've learned a couple of days ago when i did my research <laughs> and it is a great scene i was I was really into the film when I rewatched it at EditFest and I want to see the film again because mostly because of just the snappy dialogue. And this is something we're going to be talking about today, I think, in terms of <laughs> film noir dialogue and creating intense relationships. Yeah, and of course, Billy Wilder is the director who I think is one of the best directors in the history of film. And you can't, when you compare his films... You know, you don't really see filmmakers like that anymore where it's like, oh, they did that masterpiece and that masterpiece and that masterpiece. Everything from The Apartment to Sunset Boulevard to Double Indemnity to Sabrina. Yeah. When I went to AFI, they gave us a list of, I don't know, 100 films that we needed to watch before we even show up. And I think there was at least 10 or 15 film noirs in there. And I really began to love the genre, the genre of film noir. What, what, were, what were the influences for film noir, Sven? Um, <laughs> to me, I, th I think it was kind of a kind of a. It's what you would call expressionism, and uh, we would call German expressionism. Sure, painting, right? Wasn't that one of the influences? <laughs> it was, but it was also a response to a certain situation in America, which was like glossy Hollywood and major censorship in filmmaking. So I think mm -hmm. film noir sort of found an artistic way to work around it and a little like rebel against the glossiness that we were used to. Well, not just the glossiness, but also the Hays Code that was put in place. Exactly. What is the Hays Code, Tyler? <laughs> the Hays Code was a restriction that was put on films. And I'm not looking at anything. I'm just going off of my memory. But it restricted anything that went against certain values. So sex was no longer allowed in movies. S uh, I almost said smoking. Sex, a certain type of violence. Protagonists that were villains, which is an interesting thing, especially now with this sudden change in TV that people are attributing to shows like The Sopranos and Oz and Breaking Bad. It really was going on back when James Cagney was playing gangsters and then suddenly the Hays Code came along and suddenly he was no longer the gangster, but he was the FBI agent. But it'd be the same movie. Um, people weren't allowed to kiss for the most part on screen or have sex and that would that was replaced with smoking. So if people wanted to indicate or imply sex, it would be a smoking scene. I don't believe people were allowed to be in a bed together without having their feet on the ground. Among other things, you know, I could be more responsible and give like an academic response to that, but that's what the Hays Code is, per my recollection. From about 1913, 1960, you weren't allowed to show a toilet. Remember when Hitchcock had a toilet in Psycho, they had to get special permission because it was entirely plot dependent. Yeah, totally. So I can see here, unlike you, um, I actually have Wikipedia up and I also have a great infographic from the British Film Institute. And I think we should link to it as well. Where How right was I? <laughs> you, you're right on. It's, uh, the Hays okay. Code is from 1930 till 1968, so late 60s. I want to just mention some of the 
elements of a typical film noir film, according to the British Film Institute. Usually there's an investigator and there's a criminal with usually a murder case. There are two types of women in there, the bad that is beautiful and the good that is bland. There tends to be a European immigrant director. Plot is usually about stolen money or valuables. There's dark and oppressive lighting. The script is often based on American pulp fiction. There's heavy smoking, heavy drinking or both, obsession with the past, complex and or far-fetched plot, an urban location and finally a bleak view of humanity. So some of the films that we might consider to be film noir like Casablanca, Maltese Falcon, definitely a film noir. What was Aforementioned I Sunset Boulevard. From Sunset Billy Boulevard, Wilder? not considered to be a, a clear film noir, even though it, okay. it has some of those elements. I also wanted to talk a little bit about some of the stylistic choices, how this was different from prior films of classic Hollywood. Classic Hollywood had very balanced composition, so in terms of sizes of characters, very medium, very sort of middle of the road. Noir has very imbalanced, asymmetrical compositions. The focus, which I think we'll also then find in Citizen Kane, is that it has a deep focus. So you see the background and it's given equal importance to the foreground. Gotcha. The lighting. Classic Hollywood has low contrast, fill lights everywhere, very little shadows. Film noir, it's all about contrast. No fill light, long shadows. They tend to like to play with mirrors and reflections in film noir to sort of signify inner turmoil. Mm -hmm. uh, extreme camera positions, extreme close-ups. And then when it comes to the actual acting and dialogue, it tends to be very fast-paced and poetic. Very cool. And then also the, the fast talking you want to talk about has yes. doesn't have roots specifically in film noir. It was originated with movies like the front page <laughs> just kidding the adaptation of the front page his girl friday um, i know nothing about it but i was going to say that i had a misconception about the snappy dialogue so when we oh, get to oh what it, was your misconception and i'm going to there's a story about this i i don't know how i had this impression i feel like somebody taught me this film noir dialogue is all about dialogue where they're stepping on each other's lines and i mm -hmm. thought this was created through the editing and indeed, mm -hmm. especially if you look at a Humphrey Bogart, he is so fast when it comes to responding. Somebody's throwing a line at him, he's immediately back in their face responding to it. Now that I've looked back at it and I wanted to look, I looked a look at a scene of the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, which is not film noir, and I looked at Double Indemnity, and I noticed that it's actually not the editing. That dialogue is really created with the actors in camera, the way that they perform it makes these lines really like come out i don't know what's a good in, in a very rapid fire delivery that you see aaron sorkin trying to kind of replicate but it really took actors of that time period like Cary grant and katherine hepburn to really nail it and the howard hawks film i was talking about his girl friday and also of course the masterpiece bringing up baby are great examples of that and not specific to the to the noir genre yeah yeah which is now here comes my misconception so I've been propagating this idea many times in the editing when I was with clients. So, for example, I cut a scene with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he was sitting in the bay, and he wasn't. it was a scene <laughs> with Anne Hathaway, and he wasn't happy about the pacing. It's a comedy, actually. And he was like, it's, it's just <laughs> not, it's, it's not flowing. 
and it needs to be faster. So then I'm like, oh, so you mean like a Humphrey Bogart movie where we just step on each other's lines, where I just like cut between each other with a six frame overlap. And he's like, exactly <laughs> that. And wow. so now I went back in and watched and I could not find a single film noir where actually the editing creates that dialogue. But I've <laughs> right, been, yeah. I've been pretending like I know what I was talking about all the time. But I, I want to see that, though. I want to see you recut this scene and put it <laughs> with that style. I guess you don't have the coverage for it. Yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't because the way it's right. shot, it's really, I think the editing was really taking a step back. It's a very clean style. It's very, and we're going to see that in a in a second. It's sort of really the actors and the camera that's doing the work here. Yeah, as I would argue is the case with every scene we've looked at and talked about that performance is being reflected in cinematography, editing, music. There's kind of a continuity that's uh, with that's everything true. in a sense. I just feel like when I do the editing, and maybe it has to do because I'm working in independent films and maybe less perfect takes for whatever reason mm -hmm. performance budget you have it experience. but it's also the style of the style of the writing as well right i mean this stuff is written in a very stylized way the scene yeah. we're about to watch and all these other examples that require you get a, it permits a certain type of performance which is funny because i heard nicholas cage talking about that the other day saw an interview with him about everyone gives him crap for his over-the-top style but honestly you know you look back at Cary grant's movies it's very different before brando came around but it's incredibly effective for what it was. Yeah. I just feel like nowadays we have a much tighter hand on the performance through the editing. At least that's sort of mm -hmm. from my point of view. Yeah, like you couldn't give Joaquin Phoenix this dialogue from Double Indemnity, right? Like that tears it. You know what I mean? He's going to be like, really? Would I, would I say this? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm not feeling... You know, and then, then a movie... And I think the perfect example of this is Three Billboards. Three Billboards is one example Ooh, of a movie one. that had a very stylized dialogue. And there's people, you know, like the film film critiques and stuff. They're like, it's just so... Like it's self-aware. and too, It's like it's a... Like that's the... There's no way the director didn't know that making it. You know what I mean? And then the yeah. same person in the same sentence is like, his girlfriend... Friday is such a great movie. It's like, you know, what's your standard? And that's something I want to talk about with noir that, that I'll save, but just that idea that there's not really a style that exists right now for film. I mean, we could say, sure, there's the indie film style or the superhero movie, but to have something that's entirely dependent on the style of it, unless it's a certain filmmaker like Wes Anderson or someone who's just determined their own voice, you don't really see that anymore. And that's kind of one of the cool things about film noir is there was permission for it. Or, of course, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie directed by Ryan Johnson. Brick. <laughs> yeah, Brick. Exactly. The, I said it first. That, that to, no, no, I'm glad you did because I didn't have any idea what it was. But, okay. uh, you know, that I was just bringing it back to, to your story. Now I want to watch Brick know. again and see if they did anything in the editing to help the dialogue. <laughs> um, to confuse Joseph Gordon-Levitt as to what noir dialogue was. Yeah. Well, we could so also put, it, put in some more fun facts about the film. Yeah. It won no Oscars, but it was nominated seven times. Now, the, to me, the mark of a great movie is a movie that they have to specify it won no Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's when you know. Like, you're not going to hear that about Deadpool. Right. So if, I also would like to point out this is from 1944. And what is double indemnity? I believe it's an insurance clause, if you're asking me. Exactly. It's basically <laughs> you get double the amount of cash if the person dies in an accident. And that's what the film is about. We're going to play this video in just a second, just for new listeners, the way we do it. And you don't have to, but you have the option to click the link to the YouTube clip. And when we give you the signal, you can watch along. 
If you don't know where that link is, just go to Patreon, search for This Guy Edits, and then search for the podcast. And there you'll see the post of the latest podcast with all the links that we mentioned. One thing I'll point out real quick, I can't believe it's actually as long as it is, because when I watched it, I felt like it was another one-minute scene. I just realized it's almost five minutes. That's unbelievable. That's right. Should I describe or should you describe? How about you describe? I'll do it if you want. You can jump in. So here we go. In three, two... Okay, so we have Fred McMurray standing outside the door. My name is Neff, Walter Neff. If you're selling something... Oh, he's not being allowed in, but he's going to force his Notice way. Notice the cut right there. And he's not in. How soon do you expect him? He'll be home when he gets here, if that's any help to you. What is it, Nettie? Who is it? Now we meet the femme fatale. What is it? How do you do, Mr. Dietrichson? She's already manipulating him, it seems like, being in her underwear. Yeah, it's interesting how she moves towards him from up top whenever she decides to come closer yeah this just seems like a right like a dream to edit we're doing it from his pov so we get to see what he's seeing the way that he's meeting her which is a little more intimate of a way to to film it of an angle to use you're being put in his perspective which is interesting he's definitely intrigued he's starting to flirt to pick up your time oh that's all right if you wait till i put something on i'll be right down nettie show mr neff into the living room where would the living room be? In there, but they keep the liquor locked up. So right, I'll just carry my own keys. This is an interesting shot where we go from the door to the living room, the camera that's leading. Mm-hmm. The living room was still stuffy from last night's cigars. And then we have one of those famous voiceovers where just like for five lines, we just hear internal thoughts. Yeah. Sort of reflecting that Pulp Fiction genre. The fancy frames were Mr. Dietrichson and Lola, his daughter by his first wife. They had a bowl of those little red goldfish on the table behind the big Davenport. Big white shot here, where we sort of see the room. Look at the shades. That's really part of film noirs. That there's lots of shadow and broken up light. Stairs and the way she had looked at me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see her again, close. Yeah, and there's just these big wide shots with the great set design. Billy Wilder's black and white films are just really amazing. And now it's almost like we're reintroducing her. Yeah, with like a nice little detail of her feet coming down the stairs and then the camera pans. We never cut. The composition is all done through blocking and camera movement. What story? Philadelphia story. Suppose we sit down and you tell me about the insurance. My husband never tells me anything. There's a mirror in the background. Well, it's on your two cars, the uh, LaSalle and the Plymouth. Indeed. She sits down and the camera is motivated to move by her movement. In, in terms of the compositions, lighting, cinematography, I mean, this is movements. This is such a, a well-researched and discussed scene that there's a lot of great resources you can seek out. People that have, have studied it much more thoroughly than we have. There's really only one thing in this scene that stands out to me from an editing perspective. And I'll tell, I'll tell you when it happens. No, they all risk, Mrs. Dietrichson. Why? Somebody from the automobile club has been trying to get him. I think Billy Wilder is known for doing a lot of takes, like 30-plus takes, and the line of, I know it when I see it. Wonder if there was any storyboarding here, or he just figured this out as he was working the scene. Yeah, or how many takes even got printed, right, of those, or if he was so certain when he got to the last take that that's the one printed. Yeah, this moment right here where she's pacing back and forth, we should come back and talk about this, because this is mm-hmm. sort of indication of what's going on with her internally. Doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. It's a living. Yeah. 
you handle just and the duality of the shadow behind her all kinds fire earthquake theft public liability she sits back down so she completed that thought and now she has a plan now this where we go to the close-up it's an interesting moment to choose and i'm sure they filmed this entire scene in close-up in the coverage but the first time that it becomes about physical intimacy yeah that it's expressed that he's just saying i know what's going on here and that film noir thing of not really saying it but having a way to intriguingly kind of demonstrate it to the audience that's such a great choice to go to the close-up there yeah because now we have this tension between them they get up the camera moves again my husband you were anxious to talk to him weren't you yeah i was but uh, i'm sort of getting over the idea if you know what i mean there's a speed limit in this state mr neff 45 miles an hour the whole dialogue it's all innuendo but mm -hmm. it's like this continuous theme about driving and sex suppose i let you off with a warning this time suppose it doesn't take suppose i have to whack you over the knuckles it's revealed that's all it's about yeah you try putting it Here we go with a very infamous line. That tears it. Yeah, and I just love that line. That tears it, just calling it out for what it is. Yeah. He keeps pushing, pushing, and she goes with it, and then at some point she backs off, and then he backs off. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. He would have gone all the way if she would have allowed him. For sure. And now it's over. It's over. And it like it really ends on a big line at the end as well. Yeah. It leaves a lot of tension on the table. So when you, when they meet again, we'll know there'll be more sparks. I mean, we just flew through this. This was a five-minute scene, and we didn't even notice. We didn't even stop because it was, I know. there was so much to talk about. The first cut, when he goes through the door, I thought it was significant that the cut happens as he pushes himself into the room. And we are inside the room on the action of him deciding he's going to just go through that mate and find his way into the house. You know, the other thing that's interesting about that whole section is we don't even establish the house like the master shot is just to just a medium two shot of him and the maid and then we have his kind of pov shots and the medium shot of him it's not till he walks into the other room which doesn't happen until over a minute into the scene at 111 we have that cut to the that's the first real master shot i feel like establishing right the house and what we need to know about it and what kind of place it is and he's in the shade and it, maybe it looks a little barren and threatening the exterior establishing shot that's like a second unit shot I'm sure but sure. i mean establishing like not so much where they are but establishing who they are what furniture they have like who these people are based on how they're it's the first time we really get to kind of take in what the house is true i feel like here here it's at a very deliberate choice you're right yeah and up to that it's just kept really tight until he's in that room and then boom now yeah. you get to see where where they are in terms of character kind of and i love that this establishing shot is almost like a one -er. We're going from a wide shot and he walks towards the camera, towards the table, and he's in a medium shot by the time we're done. And only yeah. then we cut to what he's looking at. And this is like we were saying with Jurassic Park, this is great stuff to look at because really talented directors, this is an example of how you could use any angle of the coverage to tell the entire scene. Yeah. I also, I feel like it's a more classical approach to directing a scene which has to do a little bit with theater. Like they really try and treat each scene as one unit as opposed to mm -hmm. shots and building blocks. And it also has to do with just trusting your actors that they know how to pace that scene out. And if they do well, yeah. then you, you don't have to edit. It's a great lesson of when not to cut. 
I think the next shot we should <laughs> talk about is at around 1.53. It's that insert shot of her feet coming down the stairs and we're looking through the railing. So I'm going to play it. And this is... I mean, there's no way they used a zoom lens, right? This is just a prime lens. That just this predates the, the zoom lens. Yeah, zoom didn't really exist yeah. so much. So they went from an insert shot to just like a medium shot and I think it's gonna even get wider here in a second or oh, I could be wrong no they're cutting away but it's, <laughs> it's it's nice to be able to pull off a shot like that 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 takes some skill do you have anything else until she starts pacing no okay so here's a little bit of a spoiler obviously he, he's coming to the house because he wants to make sure that the auto insurance doesn't lapse she's learning that he's covering all kinds of different insurance, including accident insurance. She also notices that he's very interested in her because he tries to spin the conversation always back to her, asking about the necklace on her leg, all this kind of stuff, always making innuendos. And she just at some point makes the connection that maybe I could use this guy. And I think it really happens when she gets up and starts pacing. Mm -hmm. which happens at around 2.53. She's not talking. She's just listening to him. But it's all about her and her putting this together. And then she sort of checks up on him because she figured out, oh, this, you're a smart guy, aren't you? And this is not so much about <laughs> how smart he is, but how interested he is in her. And once she gauge, got a good gauge of what's going on here, she sits back down, and now her conversation is basically influenced by a whole different type of motivation. Yeah, and I, I, I read that moment a little differently. Okay, go ahead. And, and it's not so much that in that moment she's kind of realizing, oh, wait, I could kill my husband here. I feel like just from the very beginning, that's something that's just been kicking around in this character's head for a while. Agreed. How much better her life would be if this guy was gone and kind of always just kind of kicking the tires on that. Maybe it's what she planned all along and hoped for. I think um, so. I think you're right. I mean, she's obviously somewhat, whatever her motivation is, frustrated, greedy, I don't know. But she's putting it together now in this moment, like, okay, this guy could play a part. I need to check if this guy could help me. Would yeah. you agree with that? For sure, yeah. Cool. <laughs> you better. No, she's innocent. All right. So now we know she has a different motivation. And that's, I think, the main reason why she keeps on flirting with him and lets him push it a little further. So, and then I was talking about the snappy dialogue. I mean, it really, in a way, doesn't apply here because there seems to be a pause every time somebody speaks. There's nobody stepping on each other's lines. But I think it has to do with the fact that this is a scene of romance or flirtation with some evil subtext. Uh, but I still feel like this dialogue is somewhat poetic and somewhat snappy. Yeah, and it's also just a self-aware style, I would say. Yeah where they know that they are doing it more to some extent through the entire scene and film, but it definitely gets ramped up at, at certain points. And that's a point with the flirtation thing where they're really just going to ramp it all the way. And it's fun, and stylization is fun in that way, and they're making use of it. 
Definitely. This is heightened dialogue. It doesn't feel quite authentic, real, natural. I mean, it'd be funny to watch this and be like, that's how people talked back then. I, I don't think True. it is. I think they're pretty aware of what it is and just using it as a tool to some extent. I think it's how people wanted to talk. Like everyone want, like with the movies we make now, it's like how we want to seem. So I think it's a cool scene. I, I, I do think it actually, you can take away a couple of things in terms of the editing, how... It is really in the service of the story, the actors giving respect to the actors and the director completing that full vision that is laid out here of the scene. It's a very clear scene that starts one way and then there's a change and it becomes something else. And I think the editing helps with the transitioning from these story turns. Yeah, absolutely. Everything we do is dependent on the writing and performances and footage that we get. Would be cool maybe is in a later episode to look at some of those neo film noirs like Chinatown or even Brick and see if if that style is really mirrored or if they found their own way of telling that same story but using some of those other elements of film noir. Right, and if you have a neo noir you would like us to look at, maybe put it on Patreon and we will check it out in the coming weeks. Is there something big we can <laughs> end on? No, I was going to say, well, that tears it. That, that tears it? Cool. We could so, talk about next week. We're going to be talking about the ways music should not be used in a clip. So um, if you want to watch ahead, maybe watch the movie Peter Rabbit. Cool. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I don't think you need to. Well, thanks so much again. I'm looking forward to, what is it? Rabbit? Peter Rabbit. You'll like it as a rabbit, ra- rabbit raiser. Can't wait. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, and thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you have a friend that you think would be interested in kind of engaging and looking at movies in this way, let them know about the podcast, spread the word. We appreciate it. And thank you to Curta for the music. And happy editing. That tears it. Well, I'm glad we got it done because I am so tired. All right, I'm yeah. going to turn off my mic. Okay. I'm going to keep going. <laughs>